Thanks, Troy. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Um, I was thinking today, uh, looking back on kind of what my week has been for the past couple weeks, I've been kind of working my way um, out of our elders retreat that we went on. What I mean by that is, is we did a lot of good planning and praying, and now it's like, okay, we have this, uh, this kind of vision that God is starting to piece together, which we're excited to share more about with you guys kind of uh, over the summer and into next fall. But now it's like, okay, how do we start to like actually like, what are the plans for the next year? Uh, here's a picture uh, from our elders tree. Like, it was also just a really good time uh, just to be together. I've been thinking about uh, uh, kind of what we did on that trip and, and kind of the process that we took through. Uh, I uh, I planned like the, our, our agenda. Uh, um, when we were heading into it, I made these full like notebooks of like things that we were going to work our way into. They were three ring binders. I I met with the guys beforehand and I passed them out and, and got mocked as Leslie Nope um, for putting all this together. Uh, but, but we had to really think about like, how are we going to work through uh, this time? Because it was so limited uh, to plan and to think. And as I was working through structures of that, um, something that kept coming up uh, in, in more of the uh, in the better resources that I was finding about how to do some of this strategic planning is one of the first things that we had to do is we spent really our first two discussions, uh, uh, not asking the question of, of where do we want to be, uh, not asking the question of how do we get to be where we want to be, but asking the question of, of where on earth have we been and where are we right now? That was really one of the most important questions that we had to answer is what has happened to River City Church over the past couple of years? How do we feel about uh, what we've been through uh, uh, as leaders at the, in the church, as pastors here? Um, uh, how do we think about where we're at? Uh, what's in front of us? Uh, who are we as a body? We had to do all this looking back to try and answer the question of where are we and how did we get here? And, and I'll tell you this, like, I was really antsy to, like, get to the work at hand, right? Like, the thing for me, uh, I, I'm the only one of us who's, like, uh, uh, vocationally on staff here. Like, it's my uh, nine to five uh, to work for City Church during the week. And so uh, us setting goals and knowing direction for the next three years and, and this year in front of us was really important to me to feel like I had direction moving forward. So I wanted to jump to that, but it became so clear, and I was so thankful for the wisdom that asked us to look back. Because it was really only an understanding where we had come from and where we were in that moment that we could even start to think about the work that was ahead of us in the future. And so today, in the passage that we're going to work through in the book of Ephesians, which we've been going through, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, if you want to flip there uh, in your Bible, it'll also be on the screen. Feel free to use your phone. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll start at verse 1. We'll work our way through verse 10 this week. But this is the same thing that Paul is asking them to do. Uh, if you remember last week uh, in Chris's message, uh, we thought and, and, and heard about the, Im the immeasurable power that God has to offer to the believer in Christ. Uh, that we have uh, a, a glorious Savior who, who seeks to connect us to the wisdom and the beauty and the splendor of who he is. Who seeks to empower the work that he has called us to as believers. Paul has laid out this beautiful vision and then he kind of stops cold at the start of chapter 2. And he asks them to remember from where they came. So if you would look at Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to pray briefly and then we're going to jump right into the book of Ephesians for today. 
Uh, Jesus, would you now, as we look to your word, uh, use God the Holy Spirit to inform us of the truth in it. God, as we seek to understand what you've said, would you do the work that only you can do and confirm in our hearts that it is true? And then God, we ask that you would do a, a really miraculous thing that even in today, Lord, uh, that you would begin through your word, through the picture of your son, Jesus, that we see in it, to conform us to be more and more like him. In particular, Lord, help us as we think about where we've been, or maybe even some of us, where we are right now, um, so that we can see the future that you've outlined for us. I pray this in your name. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 2, we'll just start with the first two verses of it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Uh, Paul starts with this premise that the condition of the person who is apart from God, the condition of the person who is not connected in, in a covenant relationship with Jesus, has not, has not known Jesus as their savior, has not uh, submitted to his will, is not working and walking in the kingdom that he has promised. The condition of that person, he calls it dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. Paul asked us to look back and to see our lives before meeting Christ, before following Jesus, before accepting that gift of salvation. And he says, when you look at it, you were dead. Now, important that you see both that word and the tense of that word. He doesn't say you were dying. He doesn't describe where you were as ill. He doesn't say uh, before Jesus, you were just kind of having a bad day, right? He says, no, you were dead. Now, I think a few things might come up for you. Uh, maybe the first one is this, is, is to say, like, I didn't really feel dead, right? I didn't feel dead. I don't know what dead feels like, to be completely honest with you, but I didn't feel dead. Uh, maybe, maybe here today, like, you're not sure where you're at with Jesus. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And, and that even is a little bit aggravating to you. You're like, I'm not dead. Like, I'm fully alive. I have a mind. Like, I can, I can do beautiful, wonderful things. I'm not dead. Well, you're right. You, you are physically alive. Uh, but Paul is stating here instead that at the very core of who we were or who you might be, that in our spirit, in the core of what gives us life, that we were already dead, that life has ceased to exist. Because what Paul is going to define as life, and this is important, is not life in terms of living and breathing and thinking, but of the part of you created eternally to walk in the way that God had created for you to walk. He said, that part of you was already dead. That part of you was already gone. Now, the cause of this death, uh, he's going to say it in a few different ways. He says, you were walking according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Well, what's he talking about there? He's talking about sin. In our previous series, uh, we, we found this definition of sin helpful, that sin is a devastating addiction to refusing to image God. 
And you can see how starting to understand the way that we define things, the way that scripture talks about what sin is, the way that scripture defines life and death starts to form this whole picture or even theology of you will, if you will, of what it means to either be alive in Christ or dead in sin. Is that while we might be physically alive, that because we are addicted to, to um, willfully saying to God, I will not image you, I will not act the way that you have set out for me to act, I will not behave the way that you have outlined for me as best. Instead, we are addicted to working against that, and in that is where we find our death. Now, he illustrates this and says, this is what you can see all around you in the world, and he says, this is actually uh, not, not the Spirit of God with a capital S, but the Spirit of the disobedient. Those who fail to obey, those who fail to submit to what God has laid out for now, what I think Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to get them to think back on where they had come from because he's trying to make them see, especially in this word dead, he's trying to say you had a condition, you had a state that you couldn't solve. You were completely unable to make yourself alive. This was a permanent and irreversible state. He uses the word dead. He describes it in this way so it becomes concrete in your mind. And now he's going to describe more. Even though you were dead in your sin, what did your alive life in your body look like? Verse 3. He said, we all too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were. Also, uh, what did this uh, kind of night of the living dead look like? It's really tempting to do a bunch of zombie stuff here, but I'm not really into it, so I'm not going to. But, but what did it look like uh, to be dead though we were alive? He said it, it looked like pursuing fleshly desires. Now, now the Bible likes to use this word flesh. Uh, it's from the Greek word uh, sarks. That way you feel like you got your money's work because we did a Greek word thing today. Uh, this word uh, refers to the base level desires that the Bible describes as being inherent in our very physical self. Now, for you and I, I think there's a little bit of a disconnect here because, uh, first of all, we don't inherently think of our flesh, like our body and our self, as evil. And that's good. Like, that's not what Scripture wants you to think, is that the actual parts of your body are inherently evil in some way, and that where only good is found is where you kind of throw off the physical for uh, the supernatural or, 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 or kind of the, the meta uh, stuff of life. Uh, but, but for the ancient world, they did have this resistance to the flesh. And I think that's part of why they could receive this understanding of, of, of the connection to sin and flesh together. But, but I also think they were way more acquainted with the consequences of fleshly desire, right? Like, think of this. Think of just about, like, like, let's just talk about something that's easy to define as a sin. Like, let's talk about, like, slander, right? Like speaking ill of other people, uh, claiming things about other people, just speaking negatively or deceitfully about them to harm their character. Get this. In the time of the Bible, you're not going to believe this, you had to do it in person, okay? You could not write a Facebook post. You could not dance an angry, aggressive TikTok, okay? These were not possibilities, you, in order to talk about someone, in order to share an idea, to talk about how angry or stupid you thought someone else was, you had to do it in the public square. 
to their face, to their friends. And that had consequences. Like one, you just get slapped, right? Two, like somebody heard you and heard the emotion behind it could be like, you seem off kilter, right? Instead of just like dislike or whatever we do now to be like, oh, I thought that was bad. Like angry face, so stupid. Instead, like they could see the consequence of slander. Medicine for sickness, help was not as effective. So if you if you wrecked your body and sinful fleshly desires, it's a lot harder to find remedy for that. There was no bankruptcy to erase financial mess. Instead, you generally had to sell yourself into some sort of indentured slavery. They were much more acquainted with the consequences of how fleshly desires might play out in a way that you and I are insulated from. And some of that's great because we, in our modern age, uh, save ourselves a lot of pain. But some of that can numb us to the effects of what this addiction to failing to image God can do. He says, you were living in your fleshly desires. And then he says this, you were born under wrath. Now, we don't love this, right? But the Bible says that the condition of an individual as addicted to sin uh, was something that was predicted long ago. Um, I won't read it to you now, but you can go back to Genesis 3 and see how God, when he talks about the consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve, he predicts that that sin and its consequences will infect all of humanity uh, forever into the future until God returns to makes, make all things right. And that starts in Genesis 3, and then it's repeated all throughout the Bible, that we from our birth are creatures who are caught in sin, who are addicted to sin and have no desire to abandon our ways. It is bleak. Why does Paul start in this way? Why does he depart um, from all the happy stuff of Ephesians chapter 1 and the glory of the power of God that he wishes to unleash? Why doesn't he jump right to the next verse in this, which is like the next section is like one of my favorite uh, verses in the whole Bible are in here. Um, I don't actually have a lot of the Bible memorized, but like I know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 because I love them. I think I might even know 10 too. Awana, right? You're like, what is Awana? That is not the right crowd. Okay. Why not just jump to that? Because I think Paul deeply desires that you would reflect on who you were or who you are before meeting Jesus for a few reasons. Uh, the first of which I think is this. Did you catch the first couple words of verse 3 here? We too all previously lived. There is a temptation after becoming a believer, especially if you've been a believer for a while, to begin to work, look at the world around you and have a very us and them perspective on it. Um, it is easy to, instead of looking at the world around you and feeling saddened at the actions of people who are caught, who are addicted to their sin, to instead become angry at them because of their sin. Uh, I think that happens for a lot of reasons, but I'll tell you the, the number one, I think it's really, really, really easy compared to the hardship of empathy. It's way easier to be ticked at someone than to love them despite the fact that what they are doing flies in the face of what you think is right. 
Reflecting on who we were before meeting Jesus brings empathy for those who now are still caught, addicted, dead in sin. It gives us a healthy perspective on the world around us. He says, the people around you, he describes them as children who are walking in wrath. Why why does he say it in that way? Is it to be pejorative? Is it to like insult them? Like they're just stupid little babies. No, he's not a second grader, okay? No, he's saying they're like children acting in a way which they don't know better. Like when you see a child in public, maybe maybe one of mine. Just kidding, guys. It's Father's Day. And like, they're just acting with like animus, right? Like they're just acting. You're like, who raised that kid? And then you look over like, oh, that guy. Um, makes sense now, right? When you, when you see a child acting out, throwing a fit, behaving in a way, I think, yeah, you have, you have the first emotion of, of like frustration, but then really quickly that gives way to like, why is no one teaching that kid? Or you see a kid in the store, they're going to fit, and, and, and at first you're like, oh, this is, I wish I didn't have to see this. And then you see a parent, like, speak in a level of harshness that just isn't normal frustration. It's, it's normal. And your emotion changes there pretty quickly, doesn't it? From, like, ticked at this kid from the way that they're behaving, so sad that they're not being given, like, any form of loving instruction and discipline. That's why Paul describes those who are still addicted to sin, those who haven't yet met Jesus as children walking in wrath. It is to evoke some sort of empathy and compassion for the fact that they don't know better and no one has taught them the way to walk. And so they instead, they are walking into pain. They are walking into failure. They are walking into the continuance of their deaths. So that's the first reason that I think Paul asks us to look back. And we'll talk about the second in just a moment. But Paul's going to make a shift now in verse 4. He's going to describe uh, this changing moment. It's going to feel a little bit like whiplash, right? Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Whereas verses 1 through 3 describe us as people who are dead, who are walking in the flesh, verse 4, 5, 6, and 7 say that God, who is rich in mercy, and we all love that first phrase, but God, right? Everything was shut down, everything was bleak, nothing was happy, but then God acted, and in his action, he has miraculously saved us. And the language is miraculous too, isn't it? Not healed, not medicated, not surgery, raised from the dead. He says that the actions of God in Christ to you are completely outside of the nature of what you can understand or expect. Like, if the passage would have read, like, you, you were walking in sin because you were having a really bad day, and then God taught you how to do better. 
Wouldn't be that miraculous, would it? You were walking in your sin, and then someone screamed at you, and you stopped. Wouldn't feel very miraculous. Instead, it's, no, you, you were dead. He raised you from it. The intervention of God is miraculous. It is amazing. It is life-changing. It is something that only the intervention of God could accomplish. And that thing is, like, beautiful on its own, right? Like, we could just stop there and be done for today. Like, yeah, you were dead in sin, and God gave you new life. And it would be like, cool. And I think often, if you're honest as a believer, uh, maybe maybe especially if you grew up in, like, uh, the evangelical camp that I did, like, and, and that's cool. We're not going to like totally be jerks about it. Like, who cares? Camps are stupid anyway, right? I like camp. I don't know. Never mind. Okay. Like, I don't know where, where you were from, but like we tend to stop there. Okay. Like, yeah, we're dead and God made us alive. Cool. And then we go out to lunch, right? But God didn't stop. Because God made you alive. And then this verse continues, verse six, he raised us up, right? He didn't just make us alive. He didn't just bring us back from the dead. It says he raised us up with him. That's with God himself and seated us with Jesus in the heavens. He took you from the dead and then he seated you with Christ Jesus. Why? Seven says, so that in the coming ages, the, the days to come after that point, the future that we look forward to now, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He raised us up. He gave us new life that he might continue showing us grace. Now, this word grace is really simple, right? Grace, free gift. Grace is a free gift. Grace is something that you didn't deserve, that you couldn't earn. It is a free gift from God. That's why he exclaims in the middle. He said, you're saved by grace. Like, it's like you can't hold it in. God saved you. He, he, he raised you from the dead in Christ through grace. And then he wishes to show you continuous grace, lavishing on you the rights and privileges that only Jesus could have rightly possessed because of his great love for you. This is a mind-blowing statement. We not only have been raised from the dead and we have been saved from our sin that bound us to that death, but in Christ Jesus, We've been given status in the kingdom of God, which has riches that we both will actualize now as he begins to conform us to the person of Christ, and then riches in the coming ages that will daunt us as he puts them on display. I'm trying to think about, like, how, how, do we, how do we find an equivalent to this? And as I was thinking, I started doing some research. Of, I've got a little video that's going to play now. Like, I'm just going to talk while it goes. But this is a video. These are just some examples of uh, the collection known as the Crown Jewels, right? So, so right now, if you've been paying attention because you're, like, into Downton Abbey, um, like, the queen just celebrated her, like, jubilee, right? And it was, like, the Platinum Jubilee, which I think they're running out of titles because, like, Queens and kings didn't used to live this long, so they're a little perplexed by it. But so as the Queen of England currently, uh, she, as the royal sovereign, is the one who is in the technical possession of the crown jewels. And the crown jewels make up uh, not just like the, the crowns that we're seeing on here now, but the entire collection of jewelry uh, that has been collected by the British royals year over year. And what's crazy is like they've even given a lot of it away to museums and things, but in their possession 
all these crowns, these scepters, earrings, bracelets, watches, just, just a crazy amount of jewelry. And I was like, man, it must be hundreds of millions of dollars, right? I was so wrong, right? <laughs> like this shows my ignorance, four to $6 billion. That's the value of the crown jewels. That's estimated because some of them, they won't even like show you, right? Who knows what they've got? Four to $6 billion. Now, could the queen ever possibly wear all of this? Well, no. So, so what are they used for? Uh, while some are reserved just for the sovereign, the majority of them are loaned out to the family of the queen and king to display the riches and the wealth of the sovereigns throughout the entire kingdom that they reign over. Jump's not that hard, right? What is the purpose of the wealth of a royal? How did the royals use their wealth in this day? And even now what they did is they used their wealth to show everyone that came in contact with anyone in their family or in their service uh, by placing some of that wealth on them to say, these people are with me and this is what people who are with me get. And so when you read verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, think about billions of dollars of jewelry. God in Christ offers the dead sinner new life in which they are elevated to the status of being a royal family member, that they might be adorned with unimaginable wealth that would show the riches of God to the world around them and forever to come. This is what God offers that dead sinner walking in his sin. Verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of, ahead of time for us to do. Now, like I said, these have been for a long time, three of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, but here's the thing, like when, when you have verses that you really like in the Bible, uh, I think sometimes it's, it's like a two-edged sword. Like it's cool, they're easy to memorize, you love them. I think there's like such a clear presentation of the gospel in these, and that's why I like have them in my mind is that like if I want to talk to someone about who God is and what he's done, like these are awesome verses to talk about how God has given us grace, given us new life, not because of anything we did, but because of faith. But when you have verses that you love like that, what tends to happen is you start to read them apart from everything else around them. It was really good this week to have to study and think about those previous verses and to see how 8, 9, and 10 are connected. And to be honest, when I read it, I was like, why does Paul have to bring this up again, right? Like Paul just said, like, you are saved by grace. He just said, like, you are dead in your trespasses. You are saved by grace into this, like, beautiful inheritance that God has for you. And then he stops and he really says all the same things he just said, but just in a shortened form. Why does he have to say it again? Well, I think it's pretty simple. It's because you and I are forgetful and we are particularly forgetful the minute we start to, we start to uh, uh, feel or actualize a bit of the blessings of God. 
The minute that things are going well, the minute that you feel like you are walking in God's kingdom, the minute that God is like communicating clearly with you, you are so prone to forget from where you came from. So I said there was two reasons that God, I think, or that, that well, God through Paul asked us to look back on our past in this. I said the first one is empathy that you would remember where you came from and it would build in you an empathy to the people around you, not walking with Jesus, remembering that you were like them too. And the second is that it would uh, prevent you from pride. That it would prevent you from forgetting who you were before God saved you and how God saved you apart from anything in and of yourself. That it was a gift. There was nothing you earned. but It was a gift of grace through faith that even in and of itself, that faith to trust and believe in him was a gift. We are forgetful. We're forgetful of our origin, where we came from. Uh, We're forgetful of our present, the way that we stand and who we are in Christ. We're also really forgetful of our future. Both the gifts of grace that he wishes to lavish on us, as well as the future and even the next coming days and weeks that he has for us. So as you read these verses, man, if you you even took a second this week to look back and read them again, Take a moment to feel the entire first section. Take a moment, and whether if you maybe your city group still meeting, you can talk about this this week. Maybe you just discuss on Discord, like in your city group's Discord or text thread or whatever. Like discuss like like where those pain points are as you think about where you were. Discuss what you you're prone to forget about who you were before Christ in in that dead fleshly desire. Talk about the parts of that fleshly desire that still sneak up on you now as you're being uh, in the process of sanctified, becoming more like Jesus. Talk about that. Praise God together for what God has done, but then focus for a second on verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We'll close with this. Remember that the work that God has started in you The grace that he has lavished on you is unable to be divided from the work that he wishes to do through you. It doesn't depend on it, but it can't be divided from it. But the power that God has connected us to from chapter 1 has a purpose. The riches that he has lavished on us, invested in us, the craftsmanship, like it talks about in verse 10, that he has built you like a workman, builds something beautiful, like a craftsman, makes something delightful, that all of that, that all of that is for a defined purpose. In the world around you, as you look at a people, so many of whom are not walking with Jesus, they're walking as children of wrath. Not to be angry with, but to have compassion on. And that your primary work as a follower of Jesus is in your unique way because of God, how God built you, saved you, and is now gifting you to complete a good work in telling them about this Savior. That the, the, the stories that you share of who you were, that the relationship you offer, even though it's difficult, is to be the moment which they transition from death to life that that would be the moment with which they look back and say, but God. That they would look back and say, I was dead, and God made me alive. We are God's workmanship, created, saved, blessed, connected with power, with a defined work to do. 
We're going to close in prayer now, um, even as we do this, dwell for a moment in this and the work that maybe God has set before you, and the things that God has done to redeem you, and the future that he has promised for you. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for who you are, a sovereign, holy God, separate from any stain of sin. God, we are thankful for what you've done. God, while we were dead in our sin, you offered redemption and forgiveness to us. God, we are thankful for the work that you still have yet to do. God, we can't believe that a part of that work is to lavish the riches of your kindness on us. That we would put on display your goodness to the world around us. So God, as you choose to do that even now, as you choose to do that in the future, uh, would we be faithful to the work for which we were created and saved? to glorify and magnify you, to tell of your grace and your goodness, and to see the family of God grow. Grow us in our compassion and our empathy, our gratefulness and our humility, Lord, as we seek to chase after.